0: Oh, that's loud, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm Bill Curtis of the Political Science Department, and I'd like to welcome you all to the annual William J. Mazako Lecture Redistributive Justice. Or on the topic of justice, there is something that's deeply unjust going on here. And that's aging, when a middle-aged man can't go into a train park on Mount Hood Meadows without blowing out his knee. So, but today we're here to talk about justice that, that, uh, that we can actually do something about, right? And that's what Bill Mizako, class of 37, dedicated his life to. So I'm going to tell you a little about him before I introduce our speaker tonight. Bill Mizako graduated from our university with a degree in economics. He said that it was Providence that brought him to the university. In the depths of the Depression of the 1930s, Bill had no, inten- no intention of attending college. Working on a furniture assembly line, he was already re- earning more than his father, who was a railroad engineer. But his parents weren't going to let him pass on a college education and surreptitiously se- secured his admission to the University of Portland and paid his first year of tuition. Guess how much that was?
1: 100
0: bucks. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That action of parental hope and altruism, Bill said, shamed him into obedience. But, it seems, his shame was soon transformed into intellectual curiosity and respect that guided his life. His professional career spanned more than 35 years, a dozen federal agencies, including the White House, and four continents. Regardless of where Bill's travels took him, he never forgot his roots here in Portland. He sent a steady stream of postcards back to his family during his globe globe career that started with an assignment as a naval intelligence officer in Southern Europe and North Africa during World War II. After the war, Bill served for more than eight years as a senior staff officer on the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe. From there, his professional work included diplomatic posts in Paris, Rome, Rio de Janeiro, the Ivory Coast in Africa, and Vietnam. All of his efforts as an international economist were inspired by his studies right here at the University of Portland where he was introduced to the concept of distributive justice by one of his professors, Father Michael Mulcair, who taught a work titled Distributive Justice by Monsignor John A. Ryan. Monsignor Ryan was a celebrated priest and academic from Minnesota, where he taught at the University of St. Thomas in, in St. Paul, which is the alma mater of our own esteemed Dr. Gary Maleca, sitting there in the back, actually. Later, as a professor at a Catholic University of America, Monsignor Ryan developed a theoretical foundation for things like the minimum work week and the minimum wage. A prolific writer who believed that government should strive to promote the common good, he was a supporter of the New Deal, a friend of FDR, and the first Roman Catholic priest to give the benediction at the inauguration. Distributive justice, his book is a construct that explicitly links economics to fairness and ethics. In Bill's words... He explained that in a democratic society that has some ethical base, there has to be distributive justice, whereby the economy can be adjusted in order to help those who do not have a fair level of income. It's not an easy thing to do, but I feel that position is, that position is unassailable, Bill said. A lack, as a lack of distributive justice leads to all sorts of instability in the world, that was a major target of the Marshall Plan. We pushed distributive justice as a major instrument in dealing with the surpluses and deficits among the European countries after the war. America did a great thing with the Marshall Plan, Bill said, but unfortunately we have not done anything like it since. Economics is ethics first, you have to be fair. Bill returned to Portland following his retirement at nearly 60 years after he graduated. In 2004, Bill Mazzocco died at the age of 89 years. So that's the Bill Mazzocco's story. Let me tell you a little bit about our speaker tonight. We are very fortunate this year to have Professor William Chafe from Duke University. Professor Chafe is the Alice Mary Baldwin Professor of History Emeritus at Duke. His scholarship is focused on civil rights history, women's history, modern and modern political history. He is the author and editor of 13 books, including Civilities and Civil Rights, Greensboro, North Carolina and the Black Struggle for Freedom, and The Unfinished Journey, America Since World War II. He helped start the Duke Oral History Program the Center for the Study of Civil Rights and Race Relations, the Duke-UNC Center for Research on Women, and the Center for Documentary Studies. During the past decade, he has increasingly been involved in a comparative study of the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa and the civil rights movement in America. Each year he brings students to South Africa to become immersed in South African history and to meet some of those who are most active in the battle against apartheid. I'm sure that Bill Mazzocco would be as excited as we are to have him here to talk to us tonight. His talk tonight is titled, The Black Struggle for Freedom, What Black black Protest Has Achieved, Yet How Much Remains to Be Done. Give me, let's all welcome Dr. William Chafe.
2: Well, it's a joy to be here, and I'm thrilled to see so many people here. It's fantastic. Uh, And I'm especially grateful to have the opportunity to return to Portland. Uh, and uh, I'm grateful to Charles Gordon for having made this possible uh, through a conference we attended together uh, last year. Yeah. Yes. Um, you know, I think that most Americans, according to Julian Vaughn and others, when they think, think of the civil rights struggle, they think of a tired elderly woman refusing to give up her seat on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama named Rosa Parks, Dr. Martin Luther King talking about the dream he had for a different kind of America, and Lyndon Johnson coming through and supporting the legislation which passed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, (coughs) which essentially took care of the problem, and that was it. I do actually think that most people, that's what their sense is of the civil rights struggle. It started in sort of 1954, 55, uh, and uh, it was over by the late 1960s. Obviously, I don't feel the same way, and most of you probably don't either, but it's important, I think, to start thinking about how far back this goes and how far forward it goes, including to this present day. I think that one of the big problems we have is that we've been taught in our folk culture to think of America as being a very exceptional place. We're different from everybody else. We are conceived in liberty, committed to equality of opportunity. Uh, And we are simply not victims of the same kind of class and power divisions that existed in Europe and around the rest of the world. So we're better. Uh, We have overcome all those kinds of problems. And yet, this very focus on our exceptionalism keeps us from examining and recognizing the degree to which it's not the story of our country. And issues of gender and class and race have been with us all along, creating in many respects the same kinds of divisions of power and distribution of resources that exist around the world and we've been kept from recognizing the degree to which patterns of inequality not only remain but maybe may even have gotten worse over time um, one of the things we don't necessarily know is that slavery even though blacks from Africa came to this country really very early in the 1620s slavery doesn't happen until the 1670s. Why does it take that long? Well, basically because the indentured servants were both white and black. And then, many of the people who were poor got angry at those who were rich and started things like Bacon's Rebellion in Virginia. And the slave owners... Not slave owners, that the elite planters came up with the idea of emphasizing the degree to which, no, 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 all whites are alike because they're not black. Therefore, we will create legally, for the first time, the institution of slavery. So, even that is a beginning indication to us of uh, the degree to which. uh, this is not something which was there from the very beginning and part of our fundamental structure clearly the civil war was fought over slavery even though that was not the argument originally given by Abraham Lincoln in the north and tens of thousands of blacks fought in that war and they fought They constituted 10% of the casualties on the Union side. Uh, And they flocked into the Northern Army as soon as they possibly could. And they demanded equal pay. They demanded equal rights during the war itself. And as the war proceeded, their demands became much more pointed. They asked for the right to vote. And when the war was over... They thought they were going to be able to achieve that. They rallied together. They went into alliance with northern whites who came south. uh, And they insisted that they would become equal citizens. They had not been allowed to marry. Now, hundreds flocked to get married in the days after slavery ended. They basically had not been able to have an education. And now they sent the kids education was the most important thing they had going on, going on in their lives they wanted to have land and so under the idea of the Freedmen's Bureau they were going to divide up land from the planters into 40 acre plots and blacks would be able to have their own land and be independent farmers well unfortunately that did not happen the president at the time Andrew Johnson after Lincoln's assassination uh, refused to support any of these demands basically catered to the former white rulers of the south eventually johnson was impeached and reconstruction legislation was passed uh, and the south became at least from the political point of view much more amenable to change blacks were given the right to vote black men were given the right to vote the 13th 14th and 15th amendments were passed Most of you may have grown up with the idea that Reconstruction was a total disaster. It was full of corruption. Uh, It was not well-governed, etc. In reality, Reconstruction was one of the more positive periods of Southern history. Um, For the first time, states passed public education laws (coughs) for the first time. Uh, They built roads and canals. Uh, They initiated... Welfare facilities, including for the care of the mentally ill. When the Ku Klux Klan provided a a major force of antagonism, the federal government sent troops in at the end of the 1860s and early 70s. So things were moving forward in a positive way. And then the Republican candidate for president in 1876, Rutherford B. Hayes, Sold out of the black population. Again, a story not necessarily well known or understood. Samuel Tilden was a Democrat. He won the popular vote. Remind you of anything? <laughs> and after he won the popular vote, uh, the Electoral College had not yet met to cast the decisive final votes. Rutherford B. Hayes, the Republican, the, the anti-slavery party, Rutherford B. Hayes made a secret deal. He made the deal with the Electoral College members from Florida, South Carolina, and Louisiana. And if they would agree to cast their electoral votes for him, even though Tilden had won all three states in the popular vote, if they would agree to cast their electoral votes for him, he would withdraw all federal troops from the South and end Reconstruction. So, the success of the, the drive for black equality depended upon support, ultimately, from the person that ultimately in charge, and to be Hayes sold out black Americans. But that did not mean that the black struggle stopped at that point, because you still had 85 percent of black men were ready to vote at that point in time, and even though. Uh, they had little power any longer in the states. They did have some considerable political power and, like their fellows in the 1870s, they came to a kind of point of congruence with poor white people against the elite rich white planters. And in the Virginia Readjustment Movement of the 1880s, they passed legislation that was much more egalitarian and much more uh, distributive of uh, equal opportunities to all people. In the 1890s, the populist movement, there was the Colored Farmers' Alliance and the Southern Farmers' Alliance. One was white, the other was black. But they met in the same conventions at the same time, and they came together and formed political coalitions. Ironically, This is spoken now as a Duke historian from North Carolina. North Carolina was one of the great success stories. The fusion movement of white and blacks, white populists and blacks came together in 1894 and for four years was in control of North Carolina. Half the police forces were black. The sheriffs were divided between white and black they had an amazing combination and coalition. And then, in 1898, the best white people, not poor whites, not the people we usually blame for racism, the best white people, the editor of the Raleigh News and Observer, one of the leading newspapers in the South, and ultimately uh, Assistant Secretary of the Navy under Woodrow Wilson, the editor of the Raw News Observer*, Charles Acock, one of the el- most elite white Democrats, started to circulate memos and writings, which said that all black men were out to rape white women. And that charge spread everywhere, and was widely circulated in places like the uh, Raw News Observer*. Ultimately, it led to the mobilization of violence against black office holders and people who wanted to be politically active in North Carolina. It led to the Wilmington race riot of 1898. It led to the defeat of that fusion regime. It led ultimately to the murder of scores of blacks whose bodies filled the Cape Fear River. And it led to the imposition of a new regime with a governor named Charles Aycock, who was one of the best white men who had circulated all this information. And North Carolina uh, became one of the last states to disenfranchise uh, all blacks. So between 1898 and 1901, Jim Crow is put in place. The Supreme Court in Plessy v. Ferguson decides that race will be the key determinant for how to separate people, not class. And that decision, in effect, creates the constitutionality of segregation and creates the trap uh, within which the NAACP, which is formed 10 years later, uh, 13 years later actually, uh, has to f- fight for the rest of its existence. So this is a really interesting period of time. And most people now think that, well, okay, with the beginning of Jim Crow and the disenfranchisement of blacks, so you go from having basically in the southern states 85% of black men registered, women can not vote at that point, from 85% down to 5%, down to 5%. Uh, Ironically, what ultimately happens is that whites get disqualified under the same criteria as blacks are being disqualified. So the overall number of people voting in the South uh, declines dramatically by by 1920. So we have this really interesting period of time, and the assumption is, well, once Jim crow starts, then there's really nothing that blacks can do. But that too is false. Blacks continue to organize, they continue to fight back, they... Continue to organize their schools, to work together. This is where the church becomes such a pivotal f- instrument uh, within the black community. Why do you spend 12 hours at church on Sunday? Well, it's a place you can talk and say whatever you want to say. This is a place which is behind the veil. There are no white observers of what's taking place at that church service. Uh, when you go to your Sunday school at 8.30, when you go to the church service and sermon from 10 to 12, when you have lunch, when you then have afternoon singing, and you then have an evening gathering, what you're talking about is politics. What you're talking about is resistance. What you're talking about is how to sustain the movement. And that movement, of course, becomes much more complicated uh, when people like W. B. Du Bois, the first PhD from Harvard University, graduate of Fisk College, in Tennessee, Uh, starts the Niagara Movement in 1905, and then the NAACP in 1909. And the NAACP takes on the direct challenge. But the movement is there. It's in local communities. It's in those church meetings. Uh, It's in the efforts to keep on coming back. It's there in the Great Migration that takes place between 1915 and 1930, in which over 15 million blacks leave the South, going North. Uh, it's a really important time for change to begin to take place. That change is crushed briefly during the post-World War One period. Blacks come back from fighting in World War One, thinking they really will be able to make the world safe for democracy. Only to find find themselves confronted by massive race riots uh, and the kind of uh repression which is basically is about as reminiscent as you can imagine of the worst kinds of, of, of uh, white violence uh, against, against blacks. Um, and that whole effort results in a kind of, once again, the movement going underground and, and, and fighting as hard as it can to be able to stay alive. But the NAACP is still fighting. The NAACP is winning some legal battles. Uh, and then you have the beginning of the New Deal. Now, Franklin Roosevelt is not, by any means, someone who is a supporter of civil rights. But Eleanor Roosevelt is. Eleanor Roosevelt uh, is an amazing figure. Um, both of his parents died by the time she was 10, but she went to boarding a school in England and was taken by the headmistress of her school to a whole series of liberalizing places in Europe. And she comes back to the United States, allegedly for her coming-out debutante party. But what she really does is to go and unite with people like the leaders of the Women's Trade Union League and other radical women's groups in New York City. And she develops a growing empathy for issues of racial equality. She is helpful in creating what becomes known as the Black Cabinet during the New Deal. The Black Cabinet consists of about eight different people who are holding important positions in social welfare agencies and New Deal uh, government uh, institutions. They meet every Friday. Eleanor Roosevelt is an important part of that. She's also important in getting Franklin to at least be willing to consider further changes uh, and issues of race. Now, by the end of the 1930s, Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, knows that it's going to be important to go to war, because Nazi Germany, he recognizes, is a threat to the survival of everything that America stands for and that the Western democracy stands for. But Eleanor Roosevelt is the one who is instrumental in getting him to listen to the demands of blacks for reforms of hiring practices by the federal government and by defense industries. And so, A. Philip Randolph, who is the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union, that is the union created of all porters on working on railroad cars, all of whom are black. A. Philip Randolph comes, comes up with the idea of a march on Washington in 1940. And he is pledging to bring 50,000 blacks, all blacks, no whites, all blacks to Washington. Eleanor Roosevelt persuades Franklin to meet with him and Franklin finally agrees and faced with the threat of a massive march, that point massive on Washington, he agrees to an executive order creating Fair Employment Practices, Fair Employment Practices Commission. That in effect opens up tens of thousands of factory jobs in war industries for the first time to African Americans. And that is the beginning of a major shift in the way in which uh, blacks take part in the economy as a whole. Uh, World War II is the transformative event in modern American history. Uh, We oftentimes think of the New Deal as what created the social welfare state. Yes, it did create social security. Yes, it did create fair labor standards. But believe it or not, in 1940, there was just as high a percentage of people unemployed as there had been in 1932 when FDR got elected. So FDR did not end the Depression. Things did not get that much better. World War II made the huge difference because we had to mobilize. We had to... Arm the allies, we had to make possible the transformation of the economy. And that transformation has a huge impact on the entire country. You have millions of blacks taking jobs in the north in, in factories. You have millions of women. Female labor force increases 57% during World War II. And 75% of those women who go to work are married. Before that, only single women, less than 30% of married women were employed at all. And they decide they want to stay in the workforce. And the blacks decide they want to stay in the workforce in the same jobs they've held uh, in these wartime industries. Black soldiers, in turn, experienced the horror of segregation in those southern training camps where they were first sent. But then, they are sent to places like San Francisco, and then Hawaii, and then further on the Pacific, or ultimately to London and Britain, Britain and France. And suddenly, they are treated like everybody else. They are not victims of discrimination any longer. Whereas in Birmingham, black soldiers were not allowed into a restaurant where German prisoners of war were sitting down next to white soldiers eating dinner, now they were being treated as equals around the world. That creates what becomes known as the Double V campaign, victory at home as well as victory abroad. The Double V campaign becomes a huge slogan for the civil rights struggle. And you have an incredible increase in in participation in protest activities. I'm going to ask you a question. How many people have ever heard the name Ella Baker? One one hand, went up. Anybody else? Ella Baker is probably the most important person in the history of the Civil Rights Movement. Well, Baker grew up in North Carolina, in Warren County, very, very smart, was able to go to a preparatory school at Shaw, Shaw preparatory school in Raleigh, which was an all-black women's college that was created in the 1860s. She then went to Shaw University uh, and got a gutter degree, and then she went to work in New York City for the work, for the work, uh, welfare, well, New York City welfare or, operation, but then she's recruited to become the field secretary for the NAACP. The NAACP, she goes, she spit, she travels like thirty-five to forty-five thousand miles per year, going from town to town to organize with NAACP chapters. Think on these figures. In 1940, there are 50,000 members of the NAACP in the South. 50,000 in 11 different states. What do you think it is in 1945? You know, have a, have a uh, just a guess.
1: 750,000.
2: Boy, that's close. It's 500,000. It's a thousand percent increase. It's incredible. It is unbelievable. Uh, She does every. She goes everywhere, and she's so effective. Uh, She's someone who I came to know uh, fairly uh, fairly well at some point because we we had uh, a new center we started with uh, a number of uh, civil rights activists, including Bob Moses and uh, Ella Baker, and uh, she spent a few weeks at Duke and did lots of interviews with us and uh, when I would go to New York I would take a bottle of Jack Daniels and go to her apartment and have a good time (laughs) Uh, but she was incredible she was so 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 important she organized youth chapters all over the south including a youth chapter in Greensboro North Carolina so when World War II ends, you've got a very different situation. Because the Double V campaign, the tenfold increase in the NAACP, uh, the determination to act and to act quickly becomes overri- overpowering. So, Medgar Evers comes back from Japan wearing his uniform and goes, Immediately to re- try to register to vote in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, how many of you have been to Mississippi? Okay, you know Mississippi is a little bit different. A little bit different, uh, and uh, it's so different that in fact, SCLC never goes to Never goes to Mississippi. Uh, but uh, Amzie Moore comes back from the Pacific, and becomes an activist uh, it for civil rights. It helps to organize people. Um, so you're talking here about uh, a kind of immediate galvanization around the issue of demanding civil rights. Uh, there is a huge riot in Columbia, Tennessee, and that leads to finally getting the attention of Harry Truman, who is the president. And he says, oh, I had no idea things like that were going on. But he then creates the Federal Commission on Civil Rights, which is the first time the federal government has acknowledged the importance of this issue. And that commission comes forward with one of the most radical agendas uh, in 1948. Harry Truman becomes the first president ever to address the NAACP convention. Harry Truman, who no one thinks has a chance of winning the presidency in 1948, ultimately is elected by the black vote in the North. The black vote is what makes possible Harry Truman's re-election. In the meantime, the NAACP is continuing to wage this battle against segregation. And it's making progress. It's winning won a huge case in Missouri. Um, Missouri tried to create a separate but equal law school for a black law student uh, and created a one-room classroom with a one-person faculty. And they tried to make, sh- that make the case that that was equal to this large University of Missouri law school that, that Mr. Gaines had been denied access to. The Supreme Court said, no, that's not going to happen. And then you have some other cases, especially the ones, ones in Oklahoma, where blacks are admitted to the law school, but they have to sit in a surrogated segment of the classroom surrounded by a kind of a uh, closed-off section. They cannot eat with anybody else in the cafeteria. They have to eat by themselves in separate rooms. And they have a separate compartment in the library to study and the Supreme Court for the first time acknowledges that just having access to separate physical to, to same physical facilities does not mean you have equal opportunity. And that case is huge because it leads ultimately directly to the Brown decision where you are now arguing that psychological inequality the way in which you are the images that are created of you had the same impact as being denied access to the physical uh, space, and so the Brown decision happens. It's a brilliant argument by Thurgood Marshall. Uh, Earl Warren has become the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and he is instrumental in making it a unanimous decision because a year earlier it was a six to three decision. But the chief justice of the Supreme Court died of a heart attack and Warren was able to persuade the other justice, the other two justices, to vote unanimously. But then what happens? Dwight Eisenhower, who is probably, potentially, as powerful as Franklin Roosevelt could have been because of his moral authority, because he was the general who brought victory. He was the leader of the D-Day invasion in, in Europe. Um, he had been urged to run for president by Democrats as well as Republicans. And Dwight Eisenhower never, ever, ever says he supports the Brown decision, even though she decided in the second year of his administration. He refuses to intervene repeatedly on a whole variety of desegregation cases. And so you have this huge setback. Even in the midst of a period of progress with the courts overall. And it is that situation which helps to create the context within which the Montgomery Bus Boycott takes place. Now, the Montgomery Bus Boycott, as portrayed <clears throat> as almost something which happens because Rosa Parks is too tired to give up her seat is a total misrepresentation, total misrepresentation. (coughs) Rosa Parks has been secretary of the NAACP in Montgomery for 13 years. She is an activist. She has organized a whole group of women to go to a town three hours south of Montgomery in 1942 to bring rape charges against six policemen who have raped a black woman. And she brings that to trial. She is a complete organizer. Two people who have previously been arrested for not giving up their seats. But one of them was a pregnant teenager who would not look good on the public record And the other one was part of a family which had two people who would served in jail. Again, but Rosa Parks could get arrested and rally the entire community. So as soon as she's arrested, when she's let out of jail, she goes to see Edie Nixon, who's the head of the NAACP, but also the head of the Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters Union in Montgomery to organize all of those people. Then she goes to see Joanne Robinson, who is the head of the Women's Political Council. The Women's Political Council is essentially the League of Women Voters for Black Women. The, League of, the Women's Political Council, that night, that night, at the State College, the Black State College in Montgomery, produces 40,000 leaflets demanding or asking that the population in Montgomery not ride the buses, not ride the buses. And the next day, no one rides the buses. That night is when the black community comes together at Mount Hope Church, and Martin Luther King Jr. gives his speech. But he is galvanizing, with brilliant rhetoric, a movement which is already there and which has been organized primarily by these women and which then goes on for 381 days. 381 days until the Supreme Court clears its segregation on those buses is unconstitutional. So that's a pretty huge step, and it's got a lot to do with people we don't generally hear about. But a boycott of a bus is still pretty much a passive act. You're not demanding. You're not getting on the bus and and, uh, sitting down in the white section. So on February 1st, 1960, something else happens. Four young, first-year students at North Carolina A&T College, a black institution, all black, go down to Woolworth's, get a bunch of notebooks and other things uh, at the store, hold on to the receipts, and go sit at the lunch counter and demand that they be served a cup of coffee. They refused. They stay there until the store closes they go back to campus. Word spreads about what they've done. The four become, the next day, 23. 23, the next day, becomes 66. The 66, the day after that, become 100. And on the fifth day, the sit-ins involve 1,000 people, 1,000 black students. Greensboro now it kind of sounds like a a miracle okay but who are these four black students are they did they just come out of nowhere well in the case of two of them their parents are active members of the NAACP in Greensboro which has the largest NAACP chapter in the state but even more important they've gone to a high school named Dudley High School and they are taught by people who talk about civil rights in the classroom one of them is named Vance Chavis he's a science teacher Uh, he calls Greensboro a nice nasty town because no one ever calls you the N word but they treat you that way Vance Chavis has the students in his homeroom every morning addressing voter registration envelopes to the black community. Nell Coley is their English teacher. Nell Coley talks about the relationship between the ideals in the literature she's teaching and the imperative need for the students to act on those ideals in terms of their daily lives she and Vance Chavis are there during those demonstrations in downtown Greensboro, and they are responsible for the continuity of this struggle it's not something that happens just like that overnight it's something which has been going on all this time in so many different ways so basically we're talking about a movement which is coming to the fore uh two months after the Greensboro sit-ins. The Greensboro sit-ins, by the way, extend within eight weeks to 54 cities in nine different states. Think about that. 54 cities in nine different states after five days of demonstrating. And guess who decides to convene all those students together uh, in Raleigh, North Carolina, to decide what their next step should be? Her name is Ella Baker, and she is acting executive secretary for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, except that the black ministers who are running it basically treat her like dirt. But Ella Baker knows what she wants to do. Ella Baker started that NAACP youth chapter in Greensboro the students went to. Ella Baker has that meeting, and Martin Luther King comes and speaks, and SCLC thinks that they're going to make the young people simply an appendage of SCLC. And Ella Baker says, no, I think that they need to be an independent organization. They really need to have their own operation. And that's what happens. And how many of you know the name Bob Moses? Okay, Bob Moses is... Next Ella Baker and Dr. King about as important as you can get. He's a black person from New York City, whose parents are poor, who gets a scholarship to Hamilton College, gets a math degree there, goes to Harvard for his graduate student. His parents fall into poverty. He becomes a school teacher in New York. And then, when word comes out about the fact that SNCC has come into existence... He goes south, and he becomes the single most important organizer. Not top-down, but always talking to people and asking what they want, how they would like to proceed, what they should do. And where does he go to do that? Mississippi. Bob Moses is the one responsible for bringing hundreds of volunteers to Mississippi to work with those communities, no matter how horrific that experience may be. He's also the person who decides in 1964 that because blacks are being killed repeatedly in Mississippi by white racists, with no response by the federal government, that the only way you're going to change that is if you bring white kids into Mississippi and take the chance that they too will be be murdered. And that's what happens. Freedom Summer takes place. And the first week of Freedom Summer, Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, James Cheney are murdered in Philadelphia, Mississippi. And Freedom Summer becomes a huge, huge issue in which the over a thousand people are, volunteers are working and making the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party into a major force for demanding equal treatment at the Democratic National Convention in Atlantic City, and there they are essentially shafted by Lyndon Johnson, who refuses, who wiretaps their headquarters, who undermines their uh, uh, ability to organize, uh, and who refuses to any kind of compromise that will give them what they need to get that in turn is instrumental in creating what ultimately becomes the black power movement and the dissension within the student non-violent coordinating committee. So we've got this incredible period of time in which you've got this grassroots organizing taking place, bottom up, and you've got the responses that take place, sometimes positive, but oftentimes, most often negative in terms of leadership. Um, and what what really goes on at that point is that the movement uh although it has its greatest successes with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 64 which viol- which essentially rules that all economic discrimination uh is illegal uh as is any discrimination in terms of admission to public facilities and then the Voting Rights Act of 65 which is pivotal in terms of liberating uh Blacks politically uh, makes a huge difference in terms of what, what can happen. Uh, among other things, uh, the number of Blacks going to college increases by 500% by mid-1970s. Uh, you have a growing number of Blacks entering into the managerial and professional occupations. Uh, you have a significant movement of Blacks into th- into suburbia. Um, And you have a growing awareness of the pervasiveness of the issue. But most whites kind of come to believe, well, now we've taken care of the problem. Uh, We've basically solved these issues of discrimination, ignoring the 40% of blacks at the bottom of the income pool pool, who have not seen any change at all take place in their situation and who are still uh, experiencing kind of discrimination that has been there all along so we've got a very very interesting kind of uh, situation and which once again leadership comes to play a major role how does Richard Nixon get elected president in 1968 by pursuing what he calls the southern strategy what's the southern strategy essentially it's aligning himself with people like Strom Thurmond uh, white racists Uh, and trying to take the Democratic Party in the South away from Democrats and turn it into a Republican Party, which he does. Uh, Richard Nixon is against busing. Uh, He's against affirmative action. Uh, He basically is someone who becomes a very negative force in terms of civil rights. Then you have someone named Ronald Reagan. Where does Ronald Reagan start his campaign in 1980? Anyone know? Philadelphia Mississippi not just Mississippi Philadelphia where the three civil rights workers were murdered why does he start his damn campaign for the presidency in Philadelphia Mississippi one reason one reason only what it symbolizes what it says so notwithstanding the progress that did take place if you look at poverty uh, if you look at the attitude of America's leadership uh um, you could see there are limited amounts of advancement that are, that are taking place. Uh, even someone like Bill Clinton, who becomes what Tony Morrison calls our first black president, uh, does not do very much except verbally to support civil rights. In fact, what Bill Clinton does do is to pass a Welfare Reform Act, And a crime punishment act, which is ultimately totally destructive, in the point of view of Black Americans. So I'm going to close by just talking about where we are in terms of the issue, especially mass incarceration, uh, from 1980 to 2010. First of all, and this is something which most of us have no idea of, the overall prison population in the United States increased by more than four. Hundred percent from 500,000 in 1980 to 2.3 million in 2008 our population imprisoned is percentage wise uh, 8 times more than is imprisoned in Germany 10 times more than imprisoned in Sweden 25 times more than imprisoned in India Citizens of the United States comprise 5% of the world's population but we represent 25% of the world's prisoners. The amount of money spent on this skyrocketed 800% from $6.7 billion in 85 to $52 billion in 2013. But this primarily affected black Americans especially those arrested for drug offenses. The number of people arrested and jailed for drugs exploded from 41,000 in 1980 to 500,000 in 2013, when the tenfold increase. And although blacks used drugs exactly the same rate as whites, black men were five and a half times more likely to be jailed than white men five and a half times. So we are basically talking about uh, blacks make up 13% of the population but 38% of all prisoners. So we have this ongoing issue of poverty, of the large number of blacks who are still unemployed who are being jailed Uh, and essentially being denied equal rights. We even have a situation in which the Supreme Court in its Shelby decision of 2013 declared that we no longer had political discrimination based on race. And therefore, we did not have to have uh, supervision of a whole variety of southern-southern states. Uh, And so... Once again, North Carolina being one of the primary examples. There, the state legislature in North Carolina reduced the time set aside for early voting, uh, limited voter day, same day registration, and passed a voter ID law requiring a state photograph to be eligible to vote. Of course, the voter ID most likely for that is a driver's license. But there are 600,000 Blacks and Hispanics in North Carolina who do not have driver's licenses. And so we basically have a situation in which we're back, in many respects, 50 years in terms of voting rights. Uh, Alabama passed a similar law requiring each voter to show a state-controlled state-certified ID photo And then it shut down all driver's license offices in every county in the state that was more than 75% black. So, the bottom line is that our insistence on thinking we've solved these problems and that we are such an exceptional nation, so different from everybody else, is in fact no longer, if it ever has been, truth. So it's important to recognize who we are, where we've been from beginning to end, and the challenge that faces us if we want to become a different kind of country. Thank you.
0: I'm gonna let you feel Questions, yes, you've taught a little bit.
2: (laughs) Yes, so we've got about a half an hour for questions. Yes,
0: do you
1: see
2: anything in sort of this
1: uh, shift that we saw in the last election that might be an emphasis for uh,
2: overcoming the, the apathy?
1: that has
2: enveloped so much of the black community? Uh, I'm not sure there's that much empathy. I think there's anger. I think there is uh, frustration in not being able to see a clear way out. I mean, you know, I'm just thinking now in terms of voting, okay? So in North Carolina, I mean, the whole, and then the question is: It's not just it's not just racial gerrymandering; it's partisan gerrymandering. Okay, so in North Carolina, um, we redistricted. Uh, a Republican elected legislature redistricted, and in 2014, which was the first non-presidential election after we re- re- redistricting went through, Democrats won 49 percent of the vote. They won one third of the legislative seats. One third. Um, The Shelby decision, written by Chief Justice Roberts, is a disaster. And it's not going to be turned around. And then you've got the issue of what's going to happen with the whole question of partisan gerrymandering and racial gerrymandering when it goes to the Supreme Court, which now exists. Uh, which could be, for 30 years, about as reactionary Supreme Court as we've experienced in the last 200 years. So we, we're, 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 I would say, in pretty deep doo-doo.
1: <laughs> and I'm not sure how we get out of it. Yeah. Um, during World War II, there was an enormous amount of uh, ship building here. Mm-hmm. Vancouver, across the river, yep. and in Portland enormous amounts of public housing. Mm -hmm. And after the war, I decided to sell that public housing. One of the most interesting letters I ever saw was on the wall of the museum in Vancouver, Washington, at the old library. The uh, public housing authority decided that there would be open housing. Hmm. Anybody could buy these houses. Completely different story on this side of the river. Hmm. So where you live, Politically, how you view Washington and everything else makes a mm-hmm. big, big difference. Yep. And what happened in the end, in terms of oh, the Oh, everything was j- Jim Dandy, except uh, a few years ago I started going out to uh, basketball games at my old high school, which I was in the first class of over 100 to graduate in 1959. Mm-hmm. There are five high schools there with about 2,000 students. Yeah. Students each, yeah. and they now call that place Ghetto Green mm. instead of Evergreen. So I mean, there have been dramatic yeah. shifts and changes. It's like things rose and they fell. Mm-hmm. But um, after it was really interesting that, to see how public housing was handled. Yeah, it certainly wasn't handled that way in Portland. Well, I think we're, we're back in back in the middle of that right now in terms
2: of the way pe- which people are thinking about defining these issues, and you know. And it comes down to whether Justice Roberts is going to decide to hold the court together as a as a unit, or whether he's going to join the, all the other people who are on the, who are on the right and uh, make it into a reactionary court. And I wouldn't be I wouldn't bet much on it. Yes. Um, so I
1: guess if you were to kind of think as to how to get out of this, like what kind of lessons do you think that like we as young people or just people who are interested in community organizing should, should be actively kind of taking from the civil rights movement people like Ella
2: Baker which board did you say what was that which board you mention I thought you mentioned a particular board
0: oh no 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 just in general like, oh. like, like people who are interested in community organizing yeah
2: and well I do think that there is a lot of uh, energy out there on a local level um The real problem is to get groups in contact with each other who are willing to collaborate and to, you know, and and there's just a whole lot of organizing going on. I mean, my wife is now, or earlier today was at a demonstration in Raleigh, uh, which was focused on these kinds of issues with the state legislature. I think that, that there is a huge capacity for activism right now. Uh, I think that uh, there's a on on campuses there's a lot of capacity Uh, but people have to develop the kind of message and the kind of objective which will resonate with enough people to get support and ultimately find uh, support for action it's not it's not it's a hugely difficult process hugely difficult Uh, and you know it's a it's something where we, we have to kind of relearn coalition politics, and that's hard to do. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the churches are doing very much, uh, or religious organizations more generally are doing very much. Uh, and I think that that's where you need to be, be able to really le- leverage some pressure, because uh, otherwise it's not going to go anywhere. Uh, and you know, you got a very exciting campaign coming up in twenty twenty, but uh, it could easily fragment and just just, just uh, dissipate and leave us back where we are now, he said very carefully. <laughs> yes, in the back. Building off of that, you spoke extensively on strategies for
1: resistance to the civil rights movement. How do you where do you see similarities and differences to Black
2: Lives Matter? I think that there was initially a real sense of dislocation of a dis- a distance between the, between Black Lives Matter and um, we at Duke University we had we had a partnership with the SNCC Legacy Project in which we were working with <coughs> many of the veterans of SNCC and trying to create an update of the agenda for where we should be going, what we should should be doing. And we had a big conference in 2015 in which there were probably 20% of the people part of that conference, like there were 150 people there, and maybe uh, 30 were under under 25 uh, from Black Lives Matter. and three or four other groups. And their initial response was to say, we're not even talking about the same things. We're totally uh, out of touch with each other. And so uh, we decided, some of the SNCC veterans and some of us at Duke, that we would spend the entire next evening addressing this issue. And it actually made a big difference. And uh, the next time we had a conference, it was, a, it was really a coming together conference on what to do in order to work uh, as a team in, in addressing some of these issues. So I think it's not as hopeless as it may seem on the outside. Uh, and I think that there are a lot of people in those movements who uh, are now willing to share their objectives and their leadership abilities, but also to work with those people who are from another generation. I hope. Someone, you had a question, yes. Yeah, um, curious, what was the catalyst for you
1: to pursue this particular path of scholarship
2: and activism? Um, well, I grew up in Cambridge, Massachusetts in a surrogated neighborhood, which is a replica, replica of Boston. And Boston's one of the most surrogated places in the universe. And uh, the difference is that Cambridge, we had a two-block area of, of all white kids who were 95% Catholic. We had a 10-block area of all black kids. And we had a six-block area of Puerto Ricans and Italians. But we all went to the same school, unlike Boston. Because it was all within, you know. So, and we didn't, uh, we played with each other after school. We didn't go, to, didn't go into each other's houses, but we played with each other. That's number one. Number two is that uh, I was part of a youth group in my church, the leader of which was a seminary student who strongly believed in the social gospel. And so we talked about what Jesus would do in these situations. This person later became the co-director of the Civil Rights Movement in Williamston, North Carolina. Uh, So that was critical. And third, I uh, sustained this interest and... papers for professors who were interested in this kind of thing, like comparing the attitude of a suburban church and urban church to issues of civil rights. Uh, And then I wrote my senior thesis on W.B. Du Bois. Uh, And then I went to New York, uh, where I was an assistant minister in a church. Let me talk about civil rights with my youth group. So those things together can put you in a pretty, you know, clear path. Uh, certainly didn't help my didn't help my path toward the ministry. <laughs> but it was a kind of interesting experience. And then, uh, you know, I basically. wrote my first my master's essay in my first article was written about the role of blacks and whites in the populist movement in Kansas and I got that idea from a conversation with James Foreman who was the director of SNCC uh, I was in Montgomery during the summer Montgomery march and James Foreman said that this was the only previous example that he could think of where, we, where there had been this kind of effort to come together. And so I wrote this article. <laughs> so that's how, you know, and then I, I always know I wanted to, uh, you know, I was really ticked off about the fact that the civil rights movement at that point was being written about primarily as so I was totally top down. And the big book that year was John F. Kennedy and the Second Reconstruction. Well, that's about as much BS as you can possibly imagine. Uh, and so I knew I wanted to do world history and focus on bottom up change. And so that's why I wrote the book in Greensboro. <laughs> Question? Yes? Uh, why would you say that Elegana was so successful like- that, Why she was. Because she never told people what to do. She always asked them what they thought. Um, she, she knew how to relate to people on their own terms. Uh, and she was incredibly successful in making it happen. I mean, the idea of starting all these... Youth, all these youth NAACP groups It's just incredible But also That way she started SNCC Same way Making that as the, Kind of the way she Mobilized Young people And insisted that they Actually follow her example Like Bob, Bob Moses did Asking people what they thought And then getting them involved so they become part of a movement. As opposed to what was much more top down argument that would be found in uh, parts of SCLC. Uh, Dr. King was not necessarily that way, but a lot of the people around him were. So it's an interesting kind of, uh, you know, Dr. King is a, an amazingly interesting person who is. Uh, and I'm not sure that this is widely recognized, but he was a, rad- a really rad- radical guy on economic issues as well as uh, racial and political issues. And uh, yeah, if you read his sermon at Riverside Church uh, against the Vietnam War, it's a pretty, pretty incredible piece of work. And of course, the whole Poor People's March is really... A reflection of his commitment to the issue of economic inequality, as well as just racial inequality. So he was uh, he was pretty extraordinary. Uh, but of course, there was this you know big SELC work divide, which became much more powerful in '65, '66. I mean, Bob Moses after after the Atlantic City convention. When the, when the mystery-free never Repair party is basically shunted aside, uh, Bob Moses goes to Africa and doesn't come back for three years. Changes his name. Now Bob Moses is, is right now doing the same thing he did back in 1963-64. He started. The, he has the Algebra Project, which is using the Teaching of algebra to inner city kids as a basis for making contact with the reality around them. And his daughter and he are doing it together. I think he's now 82, maybe 83 years old. It's still very dynamic. Kind of an incredible force. I think that was a great
0: question to end on because you brought together some of the big figures, Ella Baker. Mm-hmm. Bob Moses, and of course, MLK. Yeah. Uh, hey, three things. I want to thank all of you for coming tonight. Yes. I want to thank uh, Father Charlie Gordon and the Garaventa Center for helping us set all this up. And then, of course, finally, <laughs> let us thank Dr. Chape. Thank you.